Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Kathleen Morgan from Honey Child Sweet Creams coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. She's the owner of Avondale Food and Wine, Mary Clarkson. Welcome back to the show. How are you? Howdy. I'm happy to be here this Christmas week, this holiday week, as we go into the end of the year. Well, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, the Omicron variant of COVID-19 is doing a number on Houston restaurants. We are seeing places close temporarily. Others are reverting to restoring their mask policies for staff and diners. Others are operating in a reduced capacity, either with shorter hours or uh, switching from dine-in to, to go only. This is this is touched on a number of places, and, and obviously there's a gap between when we record this episode and when it, it comes out, but some of the places that have closed and will likely have reopened by the time this episode comes out include Squabble, Brazil closed for a couple of days, all of Chris Shepard's concepts at Underbelly Hospitality closed for a couple of days. Nobis is closed until uh, after Christmas. So it's, it's hitting some of our favorite establishments. Mary, let me throw it to you. Like, what are you, what are you hearing out there in, in the world of your fellow restaurateurs and, and how are people responding to this? Omicron in the last week alone, I know several people within my circles that I see, you know, relatively on a regular basis that have gotten it and it's, it's here and it's spreading like wildfire. Um, I, I don't, you know, everyone I know isn't seriously sick or anything else like that. It's allergy, like symptoms, cold, like symptoms, they're fine. But, you know, in terms of hospitality, um, it's, it's incredibly difficult right now, especially as we go into the holiday, into the holiday season where everybody wants to be out with their friends and family celebrating. No, absolutely. And, you know, the data on this stuff is, you know, I'm certainly not a health expert, but the, you know, from what I've been reading, it's not enough to be vaccinated, which, you know, many hospitality workers made that, made that choice and got their shots a long time ago. But really, for, for Omicron, it really helps to be to have your booster. So if you got, and the, the recommendations on that vary, you know, if you got Pfizer or Moderna, you're six months, time for a booster. Johnson & Johnson, two months, time for a booster. And so I, I can understand why in the, in the holiday crush of increased crowds and, and trying to make as much money as possible that, that someone who works at a restaurant may have delayed getting their booster because they don't want to miss any work. Uh, and now, you know, we're seeing the, the negative consequences of that. I think, you know, I think one of the harder things too is you're correct that people don't want to take the time off for work right now because several people I know the third uh, shot or the booster shot. Uh, I know, I know several people that had actual side effects from that one that didn't have side effects from the first two. So you know, if it knocks you out for a day or two, 
that's a really hard ask when it is the busiest time of year for hospitality professionals. But I applaud the restaurants that are doing the right thing and bars and taking a pause if they're affected. No, I, I agree with you that it, it clearly it's a responsible decision. If you have an employee who tests positive, give yourself a pause, get everybody tested, encourage your employees to get their boosters. And, you know, I, I respect the transparency, right? You could, uh, a restaurant could close and say they're having a plumbing problem or something like that and not, and not be honest about the situation. So, so full credit to the restaurants that, that are being upfront about the circumstances. Uh, but, you know, this timing just sucks. I mean, there's no way around it, right? This is, this is the time for restaurants and employees to make hay, you know, there's holiday parties, there's gatherings, there's visiting friends and family. There's all these opportunities for people to, to make money. And, and Lord knows, you know, everything slows down in January and February. So, you know, this is, this is the time when everyone's looking to make as much money as possible. And so really the timing just couldn't be worse. Absolutely. My, my heart goes out to all the hospitality uh, service industry professionals this holiday season, and I hope everyone stays safe. No, absolutely. And, and obviously, this is a very fluid situation. Um, it is something that I will keep track of on Culture Map and, and social media. And so I just encourage everyone to, to be careful, be responsible. Uh, let me just ask you, is this going to alter your behavior in any way? I mean, do you, do you think you'll switch back to outdoor dining only, for example? I think, I mean, it's cold today. I know we don't really have a lot of cold weather in general right now. I, I will happily sit outside at places where that, that's an option. I will say it's definitely putting a damper on me wanting to get on a flight anytime soon. Having just returned from a lot of travel, I, you couldn't put me on a plane right now if, if I had a choice. Uh, whereas even a couple of weeks ago, I would have said differently. And I do think... You know, I'm going to keep the circle really small from now till the end of the year. No, I, I agree with you. I think this is going to maybe slow down my indoor dining to a certain extent. It will increase my outdoor dining and to go. And but but I still, you know, I still want to support restaurants. And I, you know, knowing that some businesses have been upfront about their circumstances makes me more likely to go back to them more quickly. And we can support them by ordering takeout. There's other ways, other ways to do it. I just think this really crucial period between right now and Christmas and New Year's when people want to see their family, like I'd rather kind of keep to myself so I can see my family. No, absolutely. Let us move on to something considerably lighter. Topic number two, Canadian donut favorite Tim Hortons announced that it has plans to open in Houston by this summer. Uh, they found a local franchisee to help facilitate that. Mary, let me let me just throw it to you. What do you think? Are you are you familiar with Tim Hortons, and and are you intrigued at all about a new coffee and donut shop coming into the market? I think you and I have talked about this previously. Just kind of glanced over it. Um, I'm excited for more options for Houston. Always, uh, Shipley's is my gold standard. So. Uh, I will always hold someone up to how they compare to a hot glazed donut from Shipley's. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's fair. And I, I think that kind of speaks to the, the state of our, our donut scene, right? Shipley kind of rules the roost. 
And then we've had various newcomers, especially in the last few years, you know, Krispy Kreme came, left and came back. Uh, Voodoo Donuts opened now a couple of years ago. We have uh, Dunkin' Donuts that, that's stepped up its presence in the market. Uh, Hertz Donut opened in Katy, moved inside the loop and then shuttered entirely. So, you know, all of, I, there, there's something about our demographics that makes, you know, out of state, out of region donut concepts, look at us and think that we're primed for what they have to offer, but, but it doesn't really seem like any of them make much impact. I feel like Voodoo Donuts did pretty well, you know, in terms of design or corporate gifts or for a party or something like that, just because of all the different decorations and designs that they have. But I don't think that they're the best donut. No, I find Voodoo Donuts to be a little bit too large, which sounds like a stupid thing to complain about. Uh, But they're also very sweet. So it, it doesn't really work. Like I can't eat more than maybe one or two of them. I, I have to say, I'm intrigued by Tim Hortons. Uh, you know, it's it's very popular in Canada, you know, known for the quality of their coffee, known for their donut holes. They've recently done a whole partnership with Justin Bieber, which, if nothing else, just sounds like fun. Like, I, I know that doesn't really affect the quality of the food in any way, but, but you know, it seems like a smart branding move. And so will, will, will the Biebs be making a personal appearance? I, I mean, we can only hope we can, we can only hope that he'll show up at least for the opening of the, the first Houston location, which we, we don't know where it is. Uh, they're saying summer, my guess based on absolutely nothing, no like Intel would be that they pick a spot in the energy corridor because so many Canadian ex- expats work in the energy industry that it would kind of make sense to put it somewhere where it has a, like a built-in customer base or as, you know, Lance Zerline joked on the radio uh, on, uh, on the bench on ESPN 97.5, they could just put it next to Riel and let Ryan Lashane support it entirely by himself. (laughs) Yeah. He could just add it. They could be desserts exclusively by their donuts. Exactly. All right. Topic number three. The Houston farmer's market has taken another step in its transformation with the opening of the RC Ranch Butcher Shop. This is a Texas Wagyu purveyor with a 2,800-acre ranch in Brazoria County. So they're selling steaks, ground beef, house-made sausages, meal kits, and then they've also partnered with some other purveyors for chicken, lamb, seafood. They have a lobster tank. They have cheeses. Mary, let me just get your thoughts on this. I mean, is is a high quality Texas butcher shop the thing that's going to get you to visit the Houston farmer's market? I love the idea of an addition of a high-end butcher shop. I am internally so upset with what they've done to this market. That's like, I could talk about it for hours. Um, it will. I will definitely go check them out. I miss the fact that so many of the original vendors here are no longer here because they were priced out. So a high-end butcher shop just exemplifies the gentrification that's going on over there. And while I welcome it and applaud it, I just like my heart kind of breaks for the small guy that can no longer afford to be there, to be honest, but I I will go check it out. Uh, Let's, let's see what they got. 
Yeah, I I mean, I, you know, this this tension between what the market was and what it has become is an ongoing debate. And I appreciate your position, but I also feel like it was never going to be able to remain what it was. And so, you know, this new, you know, they built this new pavilion, they put in bathrooms and, and it's covered now and it's it's a little more comfortable it's a little easier to access and and in that sense i welcome those changes you know for what it's worth the owner says they've maintained many of the original vendors obviously not everybody made it through the transition but you know trying i would to love keep... to know what the word many means <laughs> <laughs> right but but there was i mean that was a priority keeping Keeping the original character while letting it evolve was was something the the developers considered. I'm sure they did. <laughs> but no, I'm intrigued. I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not much of a home cook, obviously, but but I am really intrigued by this butcher shop because there aren't that many places that market explicitly Texas beef, right? And so the ability to get humanely sustainably raised beef chicken lamb that's that's raised in texas uh has real appeal and and i think you know will will develop a following because so many more people do care about where their food comes from and and they can't always go to you know urban harvest on a saturday morning to get it now they can get it seven days a week curious as to how this will fit in with salt and time obviously opening up and their butcher shop. I'd like to compare the two once it's open. Uh, and then, you know, Central Market uh, in Highland Village still has one of the best butcher departments I've ever seen anywhere. So I would like to kind of stack it up amongst those two just to see where it lands once it opens. No, I, I think that comparison with Salt and Time is really apt because that is another option that does have that texas focus they are making charcuterie they are making sausages they are going to have a range of different proteins and so yes i think you know that that both of these kind of ambitious food destinations have prioritized a really good butcher shop as part of their offerings says something about you know what that means for their relative importance in, in having an appealing mix of, of concepts. And, and yes, I think, you know, we will have to go head to head, you know, buy up some sausages, cook them up, have a taste test, see what we like better. I think we're having a grill night or a steak night at your house is what we're doing. Yeah, I think that's right. We're, we're, it's, uh, it's, it's steak off. I love it. Mary, I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurant of the week. Stick around. Today's show is sponsored by Balconis Distilling. Balconis makes grain-to-glass whiskeys at their distillery in Waco. I could talk about all the awards they've won or that they're one of the pioneers of the growing American single malt movement. Instead, I want to talk about flavor, specifically of their flagship Texas One single malt. Pour a dram and you'll get aromas of toffee and overripe fruit. Take a sip and savor the silky texture and flavors like lightly toasted bread with butter and marmalade. 
The finish offers more of those coffee toffee notes with wood flavors that round it all out. Personally, I drink my whiskey neat, but you're welcome to try it with a little water or even in any classic whiskey cocktail. Look for Balconis in stores, bars, and restaurants across Texas. Try it. I think you'll like it. Mary, for our restaurant of the week, I want to talk to you about Amore. This is a new Italian restaurant on Shepherd Drive in the kind of River Oaks, Montrose, Upper Kirby district, you know, kind of at the intersection of all of those places. I'm going to, I'm going to defer to you because the chef used to work at DeMarco and you are a DeMarco regular and know way more about him than I do. So maybe give the listeners a little bit of context for who the chef is and kind of how this fits in. Okay. Uh, chef Alfredo has been with DeMarco and Marco Wiles for many, many years, well over a decade. Uh, he's a consummate chef. He does everything the way you want it done. So I, I believe with the new concept, we didn't get to speak to him that night, but pastas are made by hand. Ingredients are sourced locally. There's more of an emphasis on pizza here than there is at DeMarco, which I'm excited about. There was probably 10 plus pizzas versus DeMarco only having margarita and a prosciutto pizza. Uh, the decor, the location is spitting distance from DeMarco. So the same type of clientele won't be alienated. They can dine in there. They have BYOB at a corkage fee of 25 bucks, which yeah, it's a little high, but this is still in the fine dining category. So I'm okay with that. Uh, service is great and it's small and intimate. I think uh, I've, I've been missing more Italian spots. I know we've had a lot of them come online, but the chef is so talented and I'm excited to see him evolve under his own, you know, his own control with his own concept. I think it will be a younger take than DeMarco. Um, DeMarco is definitely kind of an older guard restaurant. Yes, I love it. I have an old soul. So there's that. But this will be a younger, younger take on it. And uh, I think I think they'll do great once the word gets out about it. I didn't even know that they had opened just yet. So I was I was pleased that we got to go there the other night. Yeah, I I'll sort of endorse all of those observations. I will say it it feels more casual to me than DeMarco just because it's it's kind of a minimal decor. I mean it, it does have the white tablecloth, it does have a certain elegance, but it also has, you know, a giant pizza oven in the middle of the dining room. So it, it doesn't feel maybe quite as refined, but that's okay because I, I prefer a slightly more casual atmosphere anyway. And, you know, one thing that sort of struck me is that it's all pretty well priced. I mean, I don't think any of the, you know, outside of a, a truffle menu with some kind of big deal dishes with, with lobster and foie gras, like, I, I don't think anything was really much past like the $35, $40 range. And, and so, you know, that's really appealing to me. We had a lobster pasta for 29 bucks. That was stupendous. And we got out of there very, very reasonably. So I like that it's more casual. I think that's where dining as a whole is going. Even an upscale place will feel more casual than it did maybe prior to COVID. And I, if that gets people more comfortable in dining out more frequently, that's a win for them. I know. So yes, I, I second the lobster pasta with the what would you call that? Like a slightly spicy, maybe creamy tomato sauce? Yes. 
And then we had a, a super classic linguine with clams, you know, a really nicely cooked dish of uh, roasted shrimp in a, in a slightly different tomato sauce and a, and a delicate and very well seasoned tuna crudo. So, you know, kind of a first sampling of the menu, not, not really like a deep dive. We didn't, we didn't make it to entrees, but, you know, quite a bit to like about Amare from a first visit. I, I certainly want to go back for pizza. Uh, I like that they're open for lunch in addition to dinner. And I, I, I was really intrigued. And, you know, I'm not, uh, DeMarco's never quite been my jam. I like my, my Italian restaurants slightly more casual uh, and slightly more contemporary. But, but I, I'd say we had, a, we had a very promising meal. And, and, you know, we were sitting around going, you know, this is the kind of place where we'd both like to go back uh, with our mothers. And I think that always speaks well to a restaurant. Yeah, I love places that you and I are happy dining at that we also think our family would be happy dining at. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And I think the more broadly appealing they can be, they're going to ingratiate themselves with this neighborhood. I cannot wait to go back and try pizzas and entrees, maybe get four of us together so we can do more of a menu takedown. Yeah, so, you know, you and I have talked about a couple of new Italian restaurants over the last few months. We've been to Alba Ristorante, which is Maurizio Ferrese's spot at the Hotel Granduca, very explicitly fine dining. Uh, we've been to Concura uh, near River Oaks District, which is a little more casual, a little more rustic. Where does Amore kind of rank for you among those? This, for me, is probably my favorite food experience of the three. I think the restaurant at Hotel Grand Duca is definitely going to appeal to somebody for a special occasion, anniversary, birthday, and it's in a beautiful setting. I think Concur is a little younger, hipper. I think, you know, they're still evolving to try to figure out who they are. Amori, right off the bat, knows who they are, what they're doing, and who they're servicing. Uh, they, they have a lot of experience. They're not guessing. No, I, I think that's well said. And, uh, you know, we, we both affirm that we will go back. Uh, I look forward to another meal there. And then, you know, have you been to Trattoria Sofia yet? I have not. I have seen pictures of it. I know you have been. Another Benberg establishment. Everything I've seen from the interior photos looks like he spared no expense. It's beautiful. It gets him into the heights, which is arguably the hottest restaurant neighborhood right now. And, you know, I think I'll try him probably the same week I try Laura. <laughs> well, yeah, I would say, I would say just relative, uh, since we talked about uh, Trattoria Sofia, I think last week, you know, just to sort of compare and contrast, uh, obviously a much more luxurious dining room, uh, a more, a more contemporary menu. I'd say they're both pretty expansive in terms of the, the range of dishes. And obviously it has a full bar, which Amore only has a, a, a sort of limited wine list. So, you know, it's, it, it kind of depends on, on maybe the kind of experience you want to have. Uh, but both I think are, are good additions. I'm excited. I mean, it is a little weird that all these Italian restaurants are kind of hitting at one one time in a short expanse of a, several months, but you know, Italian is comfort food for me, so I'm excited about all this. Oh yeah, and then we have an even, you know, we have more coming, right? Because there's Bill Bracco coming to the old 
CPK space on Post Oak in San Felipe. And then uh, there's a concept from Chicago coming to the, uh, the new uh, high rise that got built where the Chronicle building used to be. So we're not remotely done. Like this, this wave of Italian food is, is, is still coming and, and it, it will be interesting to see how it all shakes out and how people sort of compare one to the other. Absolutely. Looking forward to all the new concepts. All right, Mary, that does it for our restaurant of the week. Thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. And I will be right back with Kathleen Morgan. I'm joined this week by the owner of Honey Child Sweet Creams, newly opened ice cream shop in MKT. Kathleen Morgan, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for doing this. Of course. Let's I, let's just start at the beginning. I mean, what inspired you to get into the ice cream business? I got into the ice cream business um, really because I saw opportunity in it. Um, there wasn't a lot of people doing ice cream back in 2014, whenever I launched. Um, and I saw it as a way to connect people to their food system in a way that was new, unique, and provided a lot of opportunity uh, to highlight seasonal flavors, to use local ingredients, and to put those things forward. So that's kind of what got me into ice cream. Yeah, so so maybe just expand on that a little bit. I mean, why ice cream as a, as a venue for seasonal flavors? Like, how did, how did that become? Or, or maybe... Maybe I'll flip that around a bit and say, what difference do seasonal flavors make when it comes to ice cream? Yeah. Well, as a as a means of connecting people to their food system, being able to have those conversations about seasonality is, I think, a point of connection. Um, just acknowledging the the this the passing of time, the limited time in which the these things are grown, um, I think is just one way of connecting to food. Um, also. Ice cream uses milk and eggs. Those are the primary ingredients. And those are things that were I was able to source locally um, versus way back when in 2014, whenever um, I was starting this business, there wasn't um, a lot of people milling flour. So doing a more traditional baking route was like not something that I was really, I really felt like I'd be able to have an impact in the food system going that route. Um, whereas ice cream, I would. So, so how did you learn to make ice cream? Did you grow up making ice cream? Did you, are you did you have like pastry training? Like no, no. Well, yes and no. <laughs> I grew up making ice cream, eating ice cream. I did not have pastry training. Um, I grew up baking a lot. Um, I grew up in a small town um, and did what was called Future Homemakers of America. Now it's called Future Current Community Leaders of America. So progress, I guess. But um, we, uh, I did like, um, like at the county fair, I like bake stuff and like, it was like me and a bunch of old ladies, like, you know, competing on relishes and pies and things like that. Um, but I just always grew up baking, grew up in the kitchen. Um, and so that was kind of my background um, in food, I guess, coming into this. Um, with ice cream specifically, I, I was just making ice cream at home. We had like a little um, ice cream maker on the back porch that we used to use like growing up um thankfully one of the ones not one of the ones we had to turn ourselves like we just like plugged it into the wall and then just like meddled with it like every 10 minutes like to try to like see when the ice cream was done um and so yeah that's we grew up making ice cream in that way 
so you decide to start making ice cream. Like, how did you kind of build your your recipes, your repertoire? Like, how did you and you know, since you were interested in in local ingredients, like, how did you kind of build your connections with local farmers, milk, eggs, all that stuff? Yeah, it's been um, kind of a journey. Um, I feel like I'm in a place now where I'm building solid relationships with my with the farmers and have like really good, really good sourcing. Um, but starting out, it was a little bit rocky trying to figure out who and how um, to source from. Um, so started sourcing with from uh, Grauman Farms um, initially with my milk. Um, they kind of went through a weird transition. Um, and I transitioned with them, but eventually moved on to milking um, for my milk source. Um, and um, similarly, selling at Urban Harvest Farmers Markets, which was one of my first markets that I got into, was able to build some relationships with uh, egg producers. Um, it's hard for uh, people to sell milk at farmers markets. So there, and also there's not a lot of dairies here. So I wasn't able to build those relationships there, but was able to build some relationships with um, egg producers. Um, and... Um, anyways, grow with them. Now I'm using uh, PPF Farms, um, which is a local Houston egg producer. He produces other things too, um, but an egg producer who we were able to source from. I don't even remember what the question was now, but. <laughs> I was asking about how you built your connections with the, oh, yeah. the producers who provide your ingredients. Yeah, mostly through, um, through the farmer's markets um, and through word of mouth, just like seeing what other people are doing, kind of like trying to stay connected, stay close to the ground. Um, and just seeing what people are doing, seeing who's coming up in the scene, seeing what they're growing and having conversations, I think is the best way to kind of figure out where to source from, who has what. So what was it like kind of selling at the farmer's market and establishing yourself? I mean, I remember kind of the early days of samples, but it, but it, it seems like you, you grew pretty fast. Yeah. Um, selling at the farmer's market was really kind of a great place to start. It taught me a lot about like, what customers want, what they <laughs> getting that honest feedback in real time. Um, and uh, just figuring out like, even like how you said, like sa- providing samples, whether or not to sample, when to sample, um, all of those things. Um, so yeah, it was a, a really great kind of like crucible in some ways, but also created, provided me some room, some creative room um, to, to really develop, develop my flavors, develop my skill set, all of those things. Let's expand on flavor creation because, you know, they're, they're just some staples that you have to have, right? You have yeah. to have chocolate, vanilla, probably yeah. strawberry, but, but you've gone way beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe expand on kind of what your staples are and then how you've kind of developed your own perspective. Yeah. Um, I try to keep my flavors, things that are relevant, try to make my flavors, things that are relevant to me. Um, my staple flavors anyways, my year round flavors. Um, and what's relevant to me is growing up in Houston, um, growing up, uh, the daughter of, uh, a very, um, I don't know, very Cajun, very, very Catholic mom and, um, a farming and ranching dad. And so, um, so those things are things that kind of like help, help develop my flavor, my, the flavors that I respond to. Um, so things like buttermilk pie and sheet cake, um, are things that are, I can produce year round. They're not seasonally, um, determined, um, and they're culturally relevant to me. So those are two of the flavors that make up my year round flavors. Um, I'm not a huge chocolate ice cream person. And so, um, 
which I've just like also learned there's like two lanes of people. There's like chocolate ice cream people and there's not chocolate ice cream people. There's some crossover, but like, you know, which lane you're in generally. <laughs> yeah, I, I will say just full disclosure. I am very much a chocolate ice cream. Person. You know, your lane. So that's a thing. <laughs> so, um, and I'm not, I'm not that person. So I, when I was making my chocolates, I was always kind of like, man, it's okay. Um, anyways, but the Texas sheet cake and the black chocolate are two that I really loved. And so it's like, okay, these are going to be my chocolates. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how that flavor development came to be. Um, and staying in that, as I think about seasonal flavors and expanding into other flavors, um, keeping it like seasonal, keeping it Southern, keeping it culturally relevant. These are things that I try to do. Well, and I, I will say, you know, when we spoke about the ice cream shop, you, I left with a couple of pints, including your your mint chip. Mm-hmm. It is the most intensely minty mint ice cream I think I've ever had. Hopefully that's a good thing. Is that a compliment? Oh, I think that's it's a 100%. Good. I'm sorry. I mean it entirely as a compliment. <laughs> but it, it's just, it's so like, so flavorful, so vibrant. Like I could only handle like maybe a quarter pint at a time. Yeah. You know, and sometimes like I can, I sometimes I consider a pint a single serving. Yeah, I know. Uh, we all do. But, but the mint was so just so intense that like I couldn't handle it. Like I, yeah. I, just, I, I can only go a little bit at a time. Just set it down and back away from it and say, yeah, I need a break. <laughs> <laughs> so what did you do? So how do you, how do you get so much mint flavor in your ice cream? Um, I puree um, fresh mint um, and really just mix it in with my base. You got to be kind of fast with mint because it starts to brown if you like let it oxidize for too long. So it's like a really fast process. It's like puree it quick, put it in the batch freezer, turn it <laughs> a real quick turnover. <laughs> All right. So you, you have some success at the farmer's market. You're starting to build a reputation uh, and you're wholesaling, right? Kind mm-hmm. of quietly behind the scenes for restaurants. Yes. What made it seem like it was time to go brick and mortar and how did you decide on MKT as the place to do it? I decided it was time to go brick and mortar uh, for two reasons. One, um, I'd reached a point in my wholesale where I felt like I needed to uh, scale beyond where I was, both from an equipment perspective and a space perspective. Um, there was also a little bit of instability with using other people's space and other being able to use other people's equipment. It's kind of a blessing and a curse in some ways. It's a blessing in that it allows you to access those things, but also there's just so much instability there. And in order to grow long-term, I needed the stability of knowing that I would have the equipment that I needed and the space that I needed um, when I needed it. So um, knew that I was going to have to purchase my own equipment, larger equipment, and that was going to be a huge investment. And also I felt, um, so I wanted to be able to develop um, more revenue streams to support those investments, um, wholesale catering, and really kind of like build a name for myself. As you said, I'd kind of been working behind the scenes. So I felt like it was time to kind of come out a little bit and in, in my own space, I guess, and start, start developing developing those um, sales channels. Um, and then also um, from a mission perspective, I felt like it was a little bit more challenging to fulfill my mission and build the culture that I wanted to build as a wholesaler. Um, so having a retail space, um, a physical space where people could convene, interact with the product, interact with the mission um, was going to be integral to going for, to building and growing forward. And then, and then sort of why the heights, because, yeah. you know, like when I, when I look at the heights, I see, I mean, frankly, just a lot of ice cream. So much ice cream. I get it. <laughs> I definitely thought about that too. Um, whether or not I wanted to stay in the heights, but honestly, like 
the Heights is where I live. It's what I know. I know kind of like what people do, where people go, like when do, do people walk their dogs? Where do they walk their dogs? When do they, are they, they're like, where, where do people go with their kids? I don't know. Like, I don't, I couldn't go into Rice Village and just like know these things because I don't live there. I don't, it's not a place where I, like, where I like know, but I know the heights. So I felt comfortable in this space and with like, with this, whatever, with this neighborhood. Um, and I appreciated that the MKT, um, offered like a little bit of a kid-friendly environment. It was a place where like kids could come and like, and their parents could come obviously, um, and feel safe letting their kids run around and um, not having like this like major street, like major street right, right outside the front door where you're gonna have to like make sure everybody's holding hands when they walk out the door. Like this was a very safe environment where people could kind of like come and relax. I appreciated that the MKT offered those things. Um, so I knew this was the right space for us and the right place for us. Um, so yeah, I decided to decided, decided to stay in the Heights. Um, I also kind of felt like somewhat territorial. Like I live here, like all these other people where y'all live. I don't know. Like y'all gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A bunch of usurpers, but you, bunch of, yeah, I know. Taggers. Right. <laughs> all right. So I remember that you did a Kickstarter to kind of back to help raise a little money for the shop. How did that, how did that go? And, and, and have you like, now that you're open, have, have you started to see some of your backers in the shop? I mean, it's a- yeah, there's a few backers that have come in. There's um, one lady who comes in often who I've come to know that I really appreciate. Um, I actually just messaged her this morning. We got little like key fobs for our backers. Um, so they can come and like redeem their memberships. They're pretty cute. So I messaged her a picture of those this morning. Um, but yeah, that's been cool. It's just another avenue of building community and building connections that I've been really grateful for. Um, the people who were, who reached out through the, through the Kickstarter, um, and have come by the shop. Um, so yeah, and it was, a, it was a definitely a, a boost, um, both in our ability to do this, the ability to build out, um, having that, having that equity up front. And then also, um, kind of like just a little bit of boost of confidence to see that so many people believed in us in that regard and were able to, um, you know, open their wallets to us and, and do that. So that was awesome. Yeah. And, and it also kind of gives them like an incentive to support the ice cream shop, right? Like yeah. now that it's open, it's like, I know you got to you know, redeem your you invested in this. You might as well. Yeah. Go get your rewards. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, so, so how is, I mean, you've been open, what, for, I guess like three or four weeks already. I mean, mm-hmm. how's it going? It's going good, I think. We've got a lot of good feedback, um, which I've appreciated. I think um, seeing people, seeing what people are coming into the shop for, especially the repeat customers, seeing what they what they are taking to, and um, um, I think this is going to be a new, similar to when I launched launched into farmers markets. There's a little bit of a learning curve, learning what people liked, what people didn't like, what people came to me for. There's a little bit of that now too. Like I'm going to have to learn a little bit about like what people's, you know, the foot traffic patterns are, what kind of things people like, what do they come to expect in the shop um, and kind of being responsive to those. Um, so I'm kind of watching that and, and learning those things, but so far it's going good, I think. Well, and, and you've expanded your menu a little bit. You've added some mm-hmm. baked goods. I mean, what yeah. are, what are you, what are you learning? I mean, what have you learned about what people want and, and what, like maybe what's selling more than you expected and maybe what's like, you're like still kind of figuring out an audience for. Yeah. Um, I think that people, um, 
Well, I was a little bit nervous about my waffle cones because I think that my waffle cones are a little bit different. And I was worried that people are going to have like, could have like a very like, not what I expected uh, reaction to it. And, but so far that hasn't been the case. People have really liked them. I've had some people come in and buy just the waffle cone, which is felt affirming. Um, and so, um, so that's one thing that I think people have really liked. Um, people aren't as interested in, I have to have the hot drinks right now, especially this year, like the hot chocolate, the wassail, the hot teas and coffee. Um, it's kind of like one of those things that I don't move a lot of, but I have to have them, um, because if people are going to come into the store for them, then that's, that's what they want to see. Um, especially since there's not another coffee shop really in them KT. And for some reason, people always think I'm a coffee shop. So I feel like I've been disappointing people in that regard a lot lately. I don't, I don't have a full coffee menu. Um, but um, anyways, so those are some things I guess I'm learning. What kind of things, in addition to ice cream, what kind of things I need to have. Right. People well, let me just say, it would never occur to me to go to an ice cream shop and look for coffee. I don't know. I get it all the time. So <laughs> no, I, I, I believe you. I just, oh, I, know. I, I know. See, I didn't, I wouldn't have really thought that either. Honestly, I love, a co- I love a coffee with ice cream. I'm a night, I'm a nighttime coffee person. So, you know, that's, that's my lane. But um, anyways, it just, it did not, it did not occur to me that people would be so disappointed to see that I only have like one kind of coffee or like a few kinds of teas. So anyways, <laughs> but not buying an espresso machine quite yet. No, no, that's not my thing. I'll never buy it. I, I say I'll never buy an espresso machine. I don't know. Next year you may see me with an espresso machine, but like, I don't plan on buying an espresso machine. And then let's talk a little bit about kind of some of your, your sort of future plans. I mean, you know, you have this, this glassed in kitchen, mm-hmm. this, this beautiful space. I mean, how do you want to see Honey Child evolve now that you're, now that you're open and operating? Yeah. Well, I'd love to see, um, I don't, how do I, how do I want to see Honey Child's evolve? I'd like to see us grow within Houston, possibly to um, other kiosk locations. Um, I'd like to see us evolve into having a more, um, more community programming, um, whether it be, there's a couple of things kind of like irons I have in the fire um, in terms of community programming in which Honey Child's can be either a leader, like a leader of or supportive member of. Um, and so, um, so those are some things I'd like to be able to grow and develop as we kind of like grow into this space. Yeah. I know you also mentioned maybe like cooking classes or some yeah. other stuff. Cooking classes. I've talked to, um, uh, the Houston public library about maybe having a book club, um, talk to, um, Prairie View A&M about maybe doing some urban ag tours. So there's some things we're working on, but we'll see TBD. All right. And then I, I have to ask you about one other thing, because when we when I, I interviewed you about opening the ice cream shop, this was this is kind of your first run with like employees. Yeah. Like being the boss. I know. So weird. I, I mean, you like I won't say that we know each other well, but but you have this like very chill, like kind of let it let it go mm-hmm. uh, demeanor. And so I just have to ask, like at the risk of mischaracterizing your personality, but like, what's it been like managing employees? I think it's going well. I think I was a little bit, I think it's going well. I I think my employees are getting to know me in the same way that I'm getting to know them. So like getting to know my quirks and as I get to know theirs. Um, 
generally I think I'm a very let it go. Like it's fine. I like to, I'd like to try to make sure my employees have agency in the space, especially my shopkeeps who are kind of like my middle mate, like the middle manager sort of um, make sure they have agency in the space to kind of make their own decisions and um, kind of do some of those things, which I think, I think is good. Um, yeah. I think generally I'm like, let it like, you know, very easygoing, except when it comes to closing, when it comes to closing, I'm like, we got to get out of here. Let's do this. It's game time. Like mop those floors, close that, <laughs> close that register. Let's go. <laughs> so anyways, um, I manage style, I guess. <laughs> right. And, and just to be clear for people, right. You, you take the process of creating the ice cream very seriously. Yeah. Um, but but maybe you don't take yourself very seriously, which I, I think is probably a good balance. I think that's a fair characteriz- characterization. <laughs> so um, you you've been like a pretty outspoken kind of advocate for social justice issues, and and you have a a lending library with some some I mean some pretty like political books for people that really want to kind of dive into some of those issues. I mean. Are you are you getting that kind of engagement? Are you, are people taking you up on this? Or are you having the conversations you want to have with people? You know what? I've been so encouraged these past few weeks because I've gotten quite a few people who really appreciated the lending and learning library. And I suppose part of it does have a political lens to it, but I mean any anything and everything is political can can potentially be political. So my mission is to advocate for uh, justice and equity in, in food. Um, and so, and part of where those things intersect with, uh, with other issues, then that's, then those are things that I think are, are fair game to talk about. Um, and so, um, a lot of people have been excited about it, have stopped and read the books. I've had a a few customers check out books and I've had a few, um, few of my team members check out books too, which has been kind of cool to, to be able to talk to them about that, um, what they're reading and all of those things. Um, so yeah, it's it's something that I'm passionate about, and I hope people um, find um, find to be a resource for them if if they choose to engage with that. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm excited to wait, the way in which people have responded to it so far. Yeah, do you have like one or two examples of of how you've been able to kind of use Honey Child to to further some of those interests? Yeah, um, let's see. Well, I can, I'll speak to two of my team members, I guess. Um, one of my team members is on the, her debate team, her high school debate team. And so she checked out the book, Food and Feminine, Food and Femininity, um, to um, be able to speak to the way food and gender intersect um, as potential like resources in her debate competitions, um, which I thought was pretty cool to be able to like draw those connections and be able to speak to them, that she was interested in drawing those connections and being able to speak to them. Um, another um, one of my employees is from um, the Caribbean um, by way of Kenya. And she um, checked out a book called Freedom Farmers because she um, is interested in learning about um, liber- liberatory politics here in the United States, um, having a background in that in her work in um, both Kenya and the um, Caribbean, learning a little bit about liberatory politics here in the United States, the history, past and present of those things. Um, so that's two ways in which um, people have engaged with the learning library that I've really appreciated and been it's been heartening to see. Well, good. I, I have to say that that does kind of bring me to the end of my questions. Is there is there something I haven't asked you about that you want to discuss? 
You know what? You've been such a good questioner. I don't even have anything. <laughs> I take that as I take that as the highest compliment. Well, but you know, you know, I can't let you leave without uh, playing the lightning round with you. Okay. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Kathleen Morgan, what is your favorite ingredient? Mm, probably buttermilk. It makes everything better. <laughs> what is the first band you ever saw in concert? Um, honestly, what I usually, so, uh, I probably should say this, my internet security password, like one of those like hints, whatever, but like my first concert, is, um, you know, what's your first concert, whatever. Anyways, but, um, usually what I write is the Newsboys. It's like a Christian alternative rock band, which is kind of embarrassing, but my family was really religious growing up. So the Newsboys. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, I feel like I may strike out with this one, but I'm going to try it anyway. Okay. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-through. Oh, probably Whataburger. It's by my house. It's open 24 hours. I mean, honestly, it's fine. Fair enough. All right. What is the new restaurant you're dying to try? Oh, I don't know. A new restaurant I'm dying to try? Maybe Loro or Sophia. Um, the ones that just opened on um, 11th Street. Yeah. It's opened yet. Laura hasn't opened yet, but Sophia very much opened. Yes. Yes. Um, anyways, I drive by them all the time. So I want to go by. Um, anyways, those are probably the two. All right. And then finally, when you go to a pizzeria, what are your go to toppings? Mm, go to toppings? Um, probably spinach. That's like my usual. If I'm going to do a topping. All right. Give us right the. I'm sorry. Are you judging me right now? Not at all. No, no. Let me <laughs> let me just say, uh-huh. not that anyone's ever had, but like the the Joe's at Star, the the sauteed spinach and garlic mm-hmm. is my go to Star pizza. Okay. So I don't I don't get it everywhere, but at Star, always always a Joe's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So give us the uh, give us the website and the social media and all that for Honey Child. Okay, HoneyChildSweetCreams.com. Instagram, Honey Child Sweet Creams, um, and that's it. And then Facebook, Twitter, all of those, but mostly on Instagram is where I'm most active at. And I don't have a Snapchat or a Kickstarter. What's the other one? TikTok. TikTok. Ain't got a TikTok yet, but I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen, thanks so much for doing this. Of course. Thank you. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week with our year in review uh, and always lively look back at the year in dining.